Well, thank you, Nat, for our prayer tonight, and thank you for being with us this evening. And we invite your attention to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 31. Uh, Last week, we spent our time looking at uh, chapter 30, and he is once again involved in this discussion of uh, woe to the rebellious children, the children of Judah, and those who are unfaithful to God and unfaithful to God's will for their lives. And we see a continuation of that in chapter 31. And you have heard me talk about this a number of times, and I make mention of it because really it is what is behind the message that Isaiah is giving, and that is the idea, don't look to these worldly leaders to defend you against Assyria. And we've talked about Assyria, and we've talked about how powerful they were, and And we've talked about different world leaders and different Assyrian kings. And we've looked at the historical context in which these passages were given to try to enliven our interest and give vividness to the passage itself as to what's actually going on. And and we talked a lot about that. Uh, Without that discussion, you know, it would be a lot less informative as far as the scripture is concerned. We We need to know that the people of God are facing God's judgment and God's chastisement. And Assyria is the chastisement. Later, it's going to be Babylon. And we've talked a lot about that. And we've looked at these passages of woe. And we're in that section of Isaiah where he talks about the woe, the disaster that's coming, the warning of of the difficulty that's going to take place. Uh, from God because of their unfaithfulness. One of the things that Isaiah keeps mentioning, we talked about this last Wednesday night, don't go to Egypt for help, go to God. Don't go to Egypt for help, go to God. I wonder how many times we've done that in our lives. We went to Egypt for help rather than turn it over to God and turn our lives over to God and turn it over to God in prayer. And we did everything but go to God in prayer. And I wonder how many times we've done that through difficulties of life, thinking we can handle it all by ourselves and doing everything that we can do, but yet we forget to include God in the matter, ask for God's help. Well, we need to put our trust, our faith, our confidence in God. That's his point. Don't go to Egypt. And that was what we were talking about last Wednesday night. But now we're in chapter 31. It's a short chapter. We'll probably be able to go on into, uh, well, I think I ought to go to, uh, yeah, that's it, right? I'm in the right place. Chapter 31. It's a short chapter, nine verses. That's right. And um, we'll go to that, and I'll read some of the verses and then explain them, and then it'll help us. We'll make application to ourselves. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel. That's, I think, the point. That's been the point for several chapters. And he's been telling them, I know what you're doing. I I know what you're planning behind the scenes. I, I know what's going on. And you and I talked about Egypt. We talked about the pharaohs of Egypt. We talked about the particular pharaoh here Uh, at this point in time, who would love to be uh, a big help to Judah and Jerusalem, but he doesn't have the wherewithal to do it. He's not a world power like Assyria is. Uh, These great Assyrian kings, Tiglath-Pileser, 
and people like Sargon II and Shalmaneser V, great world leaders. If you went to museums, you would see a lot about them in museums today. In their day and for their day, they were very powerful men. They were world leaders at the time. Egypt's just not there. And they want to go to Egypt for help. And Isaiah said, you're going to the wrong place. Go to God for help. And go to God for your strength. You want to go down to Egypt, put your trust in chariots. Well, to put a trust in chariot, chariot was a powerful weapon back then, an implement of war. And you want to put your trust in horsemen because they are very strong. But you're putting your trust in the wrong place. And again, I have to ask myself the question. I wonder how many times I've done that. I, I wonder how many times I've put my trust in myself rather than put my trust in God like I really should. And even though these people are, have done that in the past, I'm subject to doing that as well. And I need this lesson tonight. And yet he is wise and brings disaster who God is. The one of Israel. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. God's going to bring a judgment. He surely is. He does not call back his words. He's not going to revoke it. He's not going to revoke his word. He's not going to retract it. All this discussion we've been studying about God's punishment and chastisement upon this wicked, gainsaying people, hard-nosed, very. And we've read some passages out of Isaiah how arrogant they were. The very nerve of these people. Uh, God's not going to retract this. And Isaiah is being very plain that you have misplaced your trust. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words. But will arise against the house of the evildoers. This is verse 2. And against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. Verse 3. You look upon them as gods. You look upon them as very powerful. They're not. The power's not there. The power's with God. The Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. Those horses can die and will die. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. They are in a wonderful position in a way. I, st- I made this point last Wednesday night. I'll make it again tonight. You've got a man of God here who understands the world scene and what God is going to do and how he's going to do it and why he's going to do it, and he's explaining it to these leaders, and they won't listen. They're in a wonderful position to have someone like Isaiah step up and say, look, this is what God's going to do, and this is why he's going to do it. And God knows what you're trying to do in secret. And it's not going to work. And you need to put your hope and your trust and your faith in God. And that will work. And so they're in a very valuable position in that they have Isaiah coaching them and telling them and explaining to them. But they do not want God's word on the matter. Now I see that as modern man's problem. He does not want God's word on the matter. He'll go everywhere else but God's word in order to uh, decide these particular instances. And so this is his first point. Woe against the faithless trust that they have, verses 1 through 3. They have misplaced trust. They're not putting their trust in the right place. Now it comes to verse 4 and 5, trust in the Lord. And you've heard me say that over and over again, and that really is his point here through this 
prophecy of woe against Jerusalem. For thus the Lord said to me, As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So what is he saying there? God's going to protect Jerusalem. God's going to protect Jerusalem like a lion protects his prey. And he does not run away from the prey, even though he hears the shepherds coming. He protects it. It's his prey. It's what he has to eat. And so he's not going to run away. He uses the same reference or idea to the birds. God's going to protect Jerusalem. So there is this positive note in the matter. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on his hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. You know, like the mother birds are hanging over the nest and the kind of protecting the eggs of the the uh, young birds in the nest from predators and that kind of thing. That's the image that he uses with regard to God protecting them from the Assyrians. And you and I, and I've alluded to it several times, and I keep putting it off. I want to get to chapter 36, and we'll read it. We'll go, we could go to 2 Kings um, uh, tonight and read it in particular, but what does God do when the Assyrians actually come and surround the city of Jerusalem and attack the city and try to starve the city? What does God do? He killed them. He destroyed the Assyrians, 185,000 in one night. And the angel of the Lord came and destroyed them. And the children of Israel woke up the next day. And there's a dead army out there of the Assyrians. God was going to protect them. Now, did Assyria come and take some of the cities away from the south? Yes, they did. Did the Assyrians come and destroy the northern nation, 721? Yes, they did. But God held or protected the city of Jerusalem and would not allow the Assyrians to come in and take Jerusalem. Who took Jerusalem later on? Nebuchadnezzar did. Nebuchadnezzar comes in 586 B.C. and destroys the city of Jerusalem. Three great sieges against the city. Finally it falls in 586 B.C. and they're in captivity for 70 years. And Jeremiah lived to see it we were studying the book of Jeremiah, we'd be talking about how Babylon is going to come and destroy. Now we're talking a lot about Assyria, right? But if we were studying the book of Jeremiah, we'd be talking about Babylon. And of course, he's known as the weeping prophet, and he writes the book Lamentations, because he's filled with sorrow over the suffering and the carrying away of the children of Israel. So God says, now Assyria's not going to do it. But one of these days, it's going to happen. And it's going to happen because of their unfaithfulness. And so trust in the Lord before it is too late. So he gives them a call to repent. Verses 6 through 9 of our chapter here. It starts out, verse 6, turn to him. So that's the point about repentance, isn't it? Turn away from sin and to turn to God. Turn to him from whom... People have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. You've turned away from God, now turn back to him. This is the message of the great prophets. 
For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. Now, they will cast them away because it is very clear they will not work. They don't work. They're no good. They're of no value. You can't just create this in your own mind and think, well, we're doing something religious here. I was talking to a fellow one time. I said, you know, we need, uh, we're missing you on Sunday and missing your family on Sunday. He said, don't worry, we'll do something religious. (laughs) We'll do something religious. I said, well, the thing about it is, The thing about it is, it's not just doing something religious. You're part of the church here. You should be assembling together with the church as the manner of some is. Don't forsake the assembling of it. Come together with the church and worship with the church. Assemble with the church. That's God's divine plan for us. That's God's will for our lives, Christians, in the church. You see, these idols and silver and gold uh, which they make with their hands is no good. Not any good. Now they, may, they can do some things religious, but it's not acceptable in the sight of God. They need to repent of this sin. And they will do that. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. Repent of that. And the Assyrian shall fall by the sword, not of man. Who's going to destroy it? God will destroy it. It's not because of your power and your might that you're going to get out of this jam. It's because of God's mercy and love for his people. And a sword, not of man, shall devour him. He's going to be devoured, but it's not going to be by a human sword. It's not going to be by human power and strength. It's going to be done by God. And he shall flee from the sword. And his young men shall be put to forced Labor. Let's take a peek at that. Let's go to chapter 37. Now, by the time you get to chapter 36, you have a historical bridge in the book of Isaiah, and I'll talk about that later as I get to it. But I think what I'll do is jump in just for a brief moment in this historical bridge and go to Isaiah 37 and verse 36. And you've heard me talk about this and talk about this. So let's read just a little bit about this. Verse 36, Isaiah 37, 36. We'll read verse 36 and 37. We're in the history of it. I want to see where that happened. The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. You see, it wasn't by the sword, by man's hand. God did this. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Now you can go on down and read 38. And it's interesting reading about Ashurbanipal and Adramalek and those boys there and what they did. But we'll, we're going to study that in detail when we get to that passage. But why I went over to 37, 36, and 37 is because that's the fulfillment of what we're studying tonight in chapter 31. He calls upon them to repent because God is going to protect his people. And it's not going to be because of your power that he does it 
or your ingenuity. He's going to do it by his own hand. And so uh, Sennacherib is going to flee. And his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror. Now for him to call it his rock, the king of Assyria, means his strength. His strength is going to melt away. And his officers desert the standard in panic. You know, the flag is waving. What are they going to do? Pick up the battle flag and wait? No, they're going to run. They're going to leave the standard and they're going to flee because of what God has done, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion. Now, I think when I look at that whose fire and this word furnace, basically I think he's saying God's presence is going to be with his people and he's going to protect his people declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, that's Jerusalem, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. So you got a powerful passage in 31. It's just uh, nine verses, but you really got three great points in chapter 31. The woe against the faithless trust, which is a continuation of the point that he's been making throughout this section of woes. And then he's emphasizing the heart of the matter, trust in the Lord, verse 44 and 5, Instead of trust in worldly leaders and alliances that you make with these leaders to try to help you. And then he calls upon them to repent in verses 6 through 9. And he's going to tell them, I'm going to take care of Assyria. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to go down to Egypt and send gold and silver down there and buy help from them. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to take care of you. You ought to take notice of that. And repent of your sins. Yes, sir. Well, that's Isaiah. That is Isaiah. Isaiah weaves, and the best way I guess I can explain it, and you raise a good point, Isaiah kind of weaves the doom and the hope of the future together. And sometimes, and you've heard me say this before, he'll telescope back up into the future, and then he'll come back to the present situation. And the present situation is very bad. But then he'll give you a message of hope off in the future. And he has a way of weaving together the doom and the gloom, but the hope of the future that God has in store for his people. So it's clear God has made a covenant with David. He is not going to allow them to be wiped out altogether. That is clear. He's made a covenant with David, and one's coming from the house of David that's going to rule his people, and we know 2 Samuel 7 about Christ and the prophecy that comes from that. And we're going to learn a lot more about Christ as we go on through the book of Isaiah. And we've learned something of it already, of him already. And so it's not a matter of Isaiah saying, y'all are going to be dead. But God is going to chastise you. It's going to be a terrible chastisement. And we'll learn more, more about that in chapter 32. But there's also an element of hope for the future in this uh, prophet that is wonderful. Yes, sir. Exactly. Exactly. 
Right. Right. That's exactly. That's right. And that's so important to keep in mind. What Brother Jones is making mention of here is the fact that God's going to save the city, but not because they deserve it. Not because they could do it themselves. But he's made a covenant with David, and he's saving the city for his own sake. And this is part of his divine plan to bring the Savior, the Messiah, out of these people. And that, of course, you understand is Christ, which we learn more and more about as we go on through the book of Isaiah, but more and more about as we get into the New Testament as well. Yes, sir. See, I don't know. Now, see, somebody asked me that last Wednesday night, and that was a good question. This is not one continuous sermon of Isaiah. I don't, I don't mean to convey that idea. You've got sermons that Isaiah is giving, and he has put them together here in this book. And so I, I don't convey the idea that it's one continuous sermon, but they are put together at different times in this arrangement and in the book as God told him to put it down in a book. Now, you asked me specifically about the time element between the writing of 31 and the actual events. It would be, um, let me use my best uh, thinking hat on that. You all always ask me about these dates. Um, It's going to be around 701. So you're looking at... uh, You're looking at 30, I would say around 30 to 50 years. Now, I'm going to go back and study that some more because I like those dates too. And so you asked me a good question, and I'm not giving you a good answer. But the answer that I'm giving you is off in the near future. It's not hundreds of years. It's in the near future. And that uh, uh, between the giving of 31 and the taking place, Uh, of that in um, chapter 37 because by chapter 37 it's a done deal and it's written down as it's historically done and so we're going to get to that bridge so I'll I'll try to work on that some more but it's in the near future now things will come up in the far distant future and sometimes we think well is he talking about the restoration from Babylon, or is he talking about the, the days of New Testament Christianity? You know, sometimes it takes work to figure out exactly what he's talking about there. Sometimes he talks about both. All right, I'll work on that some more. Somebody else had a question here? Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Second Samuel chapter 7, I think, is... Uh, the passage that comes to my mind that he's going to do this for David's benefit and that he's going to maintain that house. He's going to build him a house. And uh, uh, that's the passage that comes to my mind about There you go. Thank you for that. Isaiah 37, 35 may be the uh, passage that you have in mind. 
for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. So that probably is the better answer there. Isaiah 37, 35. I always think of that passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where David said, Lord, I'm going to build you a house. God said, I didn't ask you to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. This house is going to stand forever. And, and um, it's just a, a passage that always sticks out in my mind that this God is building, a house, which is the church of the Lord we're talking about. All right, somebody else along that line? Anybody? Anybody? 31, why don't we go to 32? Is it possible uh, that we could do two chapters tonight? This says 31, doesn't it? It really means 32. Just ignore that. I don't know how that got there on the graphic. That should say Isaiah 32. And uh, we're back to this point about the future. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. All right, is that Hezekiah? Is that Josiah? I can't see it myself. Now, a lot of commentaries will say that. Uh, A lot of commentaries will say, you know, that's a future king that's coming up. Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king. So was Josiah. He says here, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place. What is he talking about here? I think he's talking about the Messianic age myself. I don't think Hezekiah and and Josiah and fellows like that, as good kings as they were, is going to fit this bill. It's going to be a reign of righteousness. Now, I think here again... We have to look carefully at what he's trying to say. And he's saying, you know, it's a parched land. It's a dry land. It's a weary land. But God's going to refresh your soul in this weary, dry land. He's going to give you protection from the elements. And you're going to have a true king. And he's going to reign in justice. And justice is going to be his mainstay. And I don't know of any king other than Christ as king that would actually fit that bill. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. And so I see that as New Testament Christianity. Now, you may want to say, well, well, I don't know. That's a stretch. Well, maybe you want to call that a stretch. I can't see any other situation that would fit that bill. Yes, sir. We are. We're a royal priesthood. And uh, we are the recipients of the blessings of Christ. Now, that's how I would see it. But now some other teacher may come along and say, well, no, he's talking about uh, Hezekiah and his court. Well, okay, but I just can't hardly see it being Hezekiah or Josiah. I think the Christians would be the princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind. He will give us and protect us. He will refresh our souls. Then, verse 3, it's not now, but then, verse 3, the eyes of those who see will not be closed. People will open up their eyes and they'll understand. They're They're rebellious people now and they won't listen. But then they will. They'll see and will not be closed. And the ears of those who hear 
will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. Now, I saw that in verse 3 and 4, and I kept thinking, you know, that's got it all in there. You got the eyes, you got the ears, you got the heart, and you got the tongue. And I think what Isaiah is emphasizing in chapter 32 is that in that day, their eyes will be open and they'll be able to understand. They hear, they're receptive to the teaching of the word of God. Their heart will be open and they'll receive it. Their tongue, they'll share it with others. The stammerer will hasten to speak distinctly. I just don't think he's talking about Israel before Babylon. Yes, sir. Yeah, Yeah, I just don't think so. I think you're right. I think he's talking about the Messianic age, the time when the coming king will rule. Now, somebody said, oh, Jim, you're all wrong on that. He's got to be talking about the days of Isaiah. I just don't see, I just don't see Jeremiah. I mean, I just don't see Hezekiah and Josiah being the fulfillment of this. I'm sorry, I just don't see it. I see three and four as the gospel age when God reveals his will to mankind and there'll be people who will listen to it. Now that generation, they're not going to listen to it. But the future generations will listen to the gospel and they'll respond to it. Will everybody in the world do it? No, he's not saying everybody in the world will do that. But he's certainly saying that the word of God will be opened up for people to listen to. Now there's always the fool and the scoundrel, verse 5. And you got two different words there. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. Now, he's kind of talking about characteristics of these two fellows, the fool and the scoundrel. And I don't know, um, you know, if there's a lot of difference between the two of them, but as I look through carefully at these descriptions... He is talking about their character. I think what he's saying there, their character is going to be revealed. The word of God will reveal the character of these kinds of people. Uh, You'll be able to discern or detect or distinguish between the good and the bad. Because the word of God has been given and making it clear with regard to what kind of activity or character or action or behavior would be the fool will no more be called noble. You know, he's probably called a noble person, but he really is a foolish person because he's rejected the word of God. If I could make a distinction, I think maybe the fool would be the person who's just ignorant. Whereas the scoundrel is a devious guy. He's a scoundrel. So maybe there is a distinction that could be seen there in verse 5. The fool will no longer be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable, like they are in this generation. There in that time, you'll be able to see the difference between the two. You're not going to be able to um, gloss over these wicked people because it will be obvious. Four, here he describes them. The fool speaks folly. That's verse six. And his heart is busy with iniquity. To practice ungodliness. To utter error concerning the Lord. 
to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. There's that kind of person there. Yes, Yeah. It does, doesn't it? Now, that was called the honorable people in Isaiah's day and also Jesus' day. Uh, But you won't be able to call them honorable. They're fools because they reject the word of God. They reject the Christ of God. And they reject the will of God. But then he says in verse 7, here's the scoundrel. I look at this guy as more devious than the fool. Both are bad. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. So, I got a third character that's entered the picture, the noble man. So I've got um, the fool in verse 5, the scoundrel in verse 7, the noble man in verse 8. But he who is noble plans noble things. There's a distinction to be made there. He's truly a noble person, and on noble things he stands. Verse 9, who does he... Get after in verse 9. Gets after the women. Now that means he must have jumped back to the present situation. If we are right in talking about verses 1 through 8 as messianic, if we're right on that. Somebody said, ah, oh, Jim, you're wrong on it. Well, okay, I'm willing to listen. Uh, Teach me better on it. If we're right on that, that means he jumped back to the present situation. Verse 9. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder. You complacent women, for the grape harvest fails. The fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and the sackcloth around your waist. Instead of wearing your refinery and your very best, you're going to be wearing the sackcloth of destruction. Beat your breast for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Here's this agricultural point coming up again. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the palace is forsaken and the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. And so it is a warning against those who are very complacent. I don't know, he's not just picking out the women because they're women, but he's trying to tell them there's go- it's going to be a terrible time for you. And the guilty part that they share in this matter is, Uh, is their complacency and their negligent attitude about the whole thing. And I think that's the point that he's trying to tell them. This beautiful land that one day 
was uh, a great land filled with plenty, and now it's a barren wasteland. And he makes one more point, and I have to push a little bit in order to get it in here, verse 15 through 20. There is a future promise that is given once again until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. Now, what does that sound like to you? That sounds like Pentecost to me. It sounds to me like he's going into the future there and looking at a promise of the future until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. I think your Acts 2, Joel 2 um, uh, discussion comes in here at this time where he's pouring out the Spirit and um, uh, the Lord is the source of the blessings. I don't care uh, whether it's Pentecost or whether it's Isaiah's day, that point's still true. The Lord is the source of the blessings. Uh, But I think more specifically, he probably has Pentecost in mind here, especially when he makes reference to the matter of the Spirit. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. How could that happen during the days of the Christian dispensation? The more the community responds to the word of God, the more peace and prosperity you will have. The more the community responds to the teaching of Christ, the more the unity the more the peacefulness, the more the righteousness will prevail. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. And you're wondering, what in the world is he talking about here? Well, I think he is talking about that future day when God will be with his people and will dwell with them in the church of the Lord. Now, he jumps back to 19 and 20 to the present situation. It's a difficult passage, I admit, but I think he's talking about the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to jump on that city. And the city will be utterly laid low. He's probably talking about Jerusalem there. Probably, I say, I can't be dogmatic about it, Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. An agricultural metaphor once again. Peace will come, verse 20. It's a hard passage. Wish I knew more about it. But I think I can see what he's saying. And that is, you've got a bad situation coming upon you, but it's going to be a great day someday. And that's off into the distant future Primarily verse 15 through 20. Well, comment or question before we go. I'm surprised I let that mistake go by me. Isaiah 31. That should be Isaiah 32 right there. Uh, Well, we did. We covered two chapters, 31 and 32. And uh, we'll go to 33 and 34 and 35. And then we'll get to study history in chapter 36. And I'm hoping that a lot of this will have much more meaning for you when we go through the historical section of Isaiah and we look at it from that standpoint. And then we get to my favorite part, and that are these great prophecies about Christ and the Messianic age and that kind of thing, where it is very clear. The servant of the Lord passages was my favorite part of the book of Isaiah. Comment or question before we go tonight?
Anybody? Anybody have a comment or a question for us before we go? Gail, lead us in a word of prayer, if you would. Ask the Lord to bless us and then to bring us back at the proper time.